So we're going to read Romans chapter 1. Uh, I want to read just from verse uh, 15. I can't remember what I said in this order of service, but I'm going to read from verse 15 anyway, um, down to verse uh, 25. And Paul is saying to the, this church that he's never been to, uh, but he plans to visit fairly soon, he says, uh, So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you uh, also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Father, as we come to your words, we pray that you would... Uh, open it up to us uh, by your Spirit. Thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit who inspired the Holy Scriptures uh, in teaching the apostles and reminding them of all that Jesus taught them. And now that same Holy Spirit is at work in us to open up uh, and bring light to the, the Word of God. We pray that he indeed would be at work in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are working our way through the book of Romans. And uh, as I said, Paul is uh, longing to to visit Rome uh, and to preach the gospel to the Roman church. And he's begun to explain how it is that the gospel works. Um, Last week we looked at verses 16 and 17. And we saw there that in the good news about Jesus Christ uh, is the power of God for salvation. That uh, God acts in power through this simple gospel message. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? You think about the gospel and the preaching of it, and it seems so pathetic in so many ways. And, and I, as a preacher, know that more, perhaps more than anyone. Uh, how pathetic it seems that what we're called to do is, is, is so, uh, uh, seems like it's so flimsy. And yet, it is the power of God for salvation. This gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as it is proclaimed around the world, then people do discover that salvation. And uh, they they discover it by putting their faith in the Jesus that is proclaimed uh, and in his saving work. They realize what it is that Jesus has come to do. They realize who Jesus is. And they realize that what God is doing in the midst of all of that, that that God is making over to people 
a righteousness that can only be found in Jesus Christ. Uh, That we lack righteousness as human beings that are fallen and sinful. And we live in unrighteousness. But God has made a righteousness available for us that we can have. And thus he has sent uh, the likes of Paul to go and preach it and proclaim it without shame. uh, Without uh, any hesitation. He gets out there and he preaches that gospel. And the amazing thing about, about it is that all we need is faith. And even that is, uh, is a gift of God. We see that from other places in scripture, don't we? That faith is a gift of God. God enables us to be able to believe it. And, but, but with that faith, we, as it were, lay hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything that is in him becomes ours in Christ. All his uh, blessedness becomes ours. His characteristics, uh, all the things that he has won for us becomes ours also. Uh, Specifically, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. As it were, all our sin and moral failure is wiped off the slate and instead, under our name on his list in the book of life, is written that word, righteous. Dancer is righteous. You're righteous if you're a believer. Righteous by grace. And that's the glory of the gospel. Because at the end of the day, our salvation has nothing to do with our ability to impress God with our supposed goodness. It has everything to do with Jesus Christ's saving work for us and the grace of God that that demonstrates towards us. And all we do, as it were, is we stretch out our weak hand of faith to a Savior whose hands are already reached out to us. And he takes us up and snatches us to safety, the safety of eternal salvation. Uh, now, of course, that, all of that's uh, enough of a sermon in itself. Um, could just stop there, I suppose, <laughs> having preached the gospel to you. Um, but I need to labor the points because some of us, uh, some people have difficulty grasping uh, just how important it is that you, are saved, you need to be saved at all. Uh, some, there are some people who still harbor the idea that I don't really need to be saved. I don't understand what all the fuss is about. And so Paul is not actually finished here. Uh, there is more groundwork to be raked over to explain why this gospel is actually necessary. And that's why we come to verses 18 uh, onwards. And actually all the way through to from 118 to 320, uh, Paul is making the case that there is, there is no one who does not need this salvation that is offered to them in the gospel. Every single person on this earth needs to be saved. They need this salvation. There is no other way. And so what we're going to do now is to begin to wade, as it were, into the sea of bad news that Paul is about to set out before us. The bad news of the condition of, the human, uh, of, of humanity. Uh, and that's necessary, isn't it? In order to fully understand the beauty and the glory and the wonder of the good news, we really need to understand the bad news also. 
and just to understand how bad it actually is. So I've got three big headings that I want us to think about this afternoon up to verse 25. Firstly, to think about a wrath presently revealed. A wrath that is presently revealed. Secondly, I want to think with you about how mankind has no excuses. Mankind has no excuses. And thirdly, and perhaps cryptically, the danger of living a lie. Living a lie. So first of all, the wrath that's presently revealed. And in this passage we come across this concept of the wrath of God. And in the New Testament, uh, apart from the book of Revelation, it appears, that word wrath appears most often in the book of Romans, ten times in fact. Um, So what is wrath? What is God's wrath? Uh, If I may, let me quote John Murray, uh, the great uh, writer, the great reformed writer on this. He says, wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. I'll say that again. Uh, Murray has a habit of writing very densely, and you have to think of every word. But wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. And so... Wrath is when God acts in righteousness to apply his retributive justice to the one contradicting his holiness. And therefore you find in verse 18 that this wrath is being revealed, quote verse 18, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. When he says men there he means men and women. Uh, He's speaking generically there. But it's just worth pausing for a moment to think what he's saying there. Um, what Paul, if you look back to verse 17, remember verse 17? Uh, Paul has spoken about how the gospel is revealed uh, in the gospel. Uh, a righteousness is revealed uh, that is received by faith. It's a righteousness we don't have, a righteousness we need for salvation. But now it's revealed in the gospel. Yet if people who are left in their own unrighteousness because they have not acted in faith to receive God's righteousness, what they then face is not indifference from God, but rather they face a holy wrath and anger from God, which flows from his justice. So there are only two options. You either have the gospel revealed in the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ and you receive it by faith or the wrath of God is now presently being revealed to you which flows from his justice. So let me just say a couple of things about this wrath. And the first is simply to say that it is a present reality. Present reality. And this comes from the verb in verse 18, where he says that this righteousness, uh, this wrath rather, is revealed from heaven. And the sense of it is, is not that it's something in the past that has been revealed and, and therefore now stands as a revealed thing. 
But the sense of it is that it is continuing to be revealed. It is being revealed. It is an ongoing, continuous process in the present. And as we go on in the rest of this chapter, we'll see how this is so. So it is a present reality. But then secondly, the nature of that revelation. It's the same word as I said in verse 17. So the righteousness of God is revealed, verse 17. But the alternative to that is the revelation of wrath. When we thought about verse 17, uh, we said it's not just the transfer of information, but rather it's the saving application of truth by the Holy Spirit, showing us the, the, the gospel and the benefits of Jesus Christ to the one to whom it is revealed. Now, isn't that your experience? Maybe that is your experience. It's certainly my experience that... There was a time when I couldn't see anything of uh, the goodness of God in the gospel. I used to go to church, but I couldn't, I couldn't stand it. Um, I didn't see anything there except moralism. Uh, but then there came a point where suddenly it's as though my eyes were wide open and I could see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving work. And in that sense, there was a revelation of the gospel, the righteousness of God. Well, the same is true of the revelation of God's wrath. It's the other aspects of the revelation that is made out to the new believer. It's one of the things that truly marks him or her out. Is that when they become supremely conscious of the great danger that they are in if they do not have Christ. And all that is left is judgment and wrath if they do not come to Christ. And so you look at yourself, and you see how horrible your own sin is to God. And it's not just that you, you've been found out, but it is that you realize that actually your sin is a real problem, that you yourself see it as it truly is, and why it deserves God's wrath. And more than that, you're also able to rightly see the world around you as hopelessly lost and in danger as well as it wallows in its own sin. Isn't that what we see when you become a Christian? You discover the world is not all it's cracked up to be. You see this, the sinfulness of the world and its rebellion against God. That's the revelation of the wrath of God. Previously, you couldn't see it. You thought life was just carrying on, ticking over. And Paul explains why that is. At the end of verse 18, that men and women, they have ungodliness and unrighteousness, and who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For every person who is not a Christian... There is an internal act of suppression going on in them who have not had that revelation. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So do you see what happens when somebody uh, truly receives the gospel of Jesus Christ and becomes a Christian? 
two things are revealed to them. Firstly, the righteousness of God revealed as they look at Jesus Christ and the gospel that is preached. And their heart goes out to him. They want to receive him. And secondly, they see wrath at work that they couldn't see before. The anger of God against sin. Present reality. Now you might be thinking, but there's, there are pl- plenty of people in the world who, who don't know this. And there are some people that believe that because the gospel has not been heard, then surely they have an excuse. And they might say, well, they didn't know, did they? They didn't know. And you may think that yourself. And you may think, well, what about my fam- family members, my friends? Uh, and they, they claim they don't know. They don't know anything. How are they accountable for that? Well, Paul anticipates that. This is what he comes to next. Mankind is without excuses. Point number two, mankind is without excuse. If you look at verse 20, uh, Paul says that directly. So they are without excuse. How did he come to that conclusion? Well, verse 19 says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. There is enough information there, enough revelation, general revelation, and all that has been created for all people to be without excuse. And these qualities can be perceived by all, says the Bible. And Paul spells it out. People know about God. They know about at least a divine being with eternal power and a divine nature. They know about it. Now, how can this be the case? Haven't scientists studied the world enough to know that God is not to be found anywhere? Well, two things to say. Can I give you a silly analogy uh, to, to the scientist who says, uh, we've looked for God and we can't find him? You know, Khrushchev, uh, the president of the Soviet Union, who sent uh, Yuri Gagarin up into the sky, said we sent a man up into space and we didn't find God, or something like that, uh, with all the arrogance of an atheist. Well, here's, here's a silly analogy. If you were to take a train from Birmingham to Wales. And as you're going along, you pass through the border and uh, you see a load of rocks, uh, white rocks laid out on a hillside and they seem to spell out the words, Welcome to Wales. Uh, What would you think about that? Would you think, that's amazing. These rocks have just appeared there randomly and uh, they say, Welcome to Wales. What an amazing thing. Or would you say, oh, somebody must have done that. (laughs) I think you would. Somebody must have uh, planned that and laid it out so you could send a welcoming message to every visitor. Now you could, you know, if you're uh, a skeptic on the train and you get off the train, you could go and examine those rocks. Uh, And the thing is, you won't find the people who, who put the rocks there. Uh, you won't find you need not even find any evidence that people have been there at all. The rocks are just sitting there, uh, spelling out "Welcome to Wales." But what you do have is the thing itself, the sign that says "Welcome to Wales," a sign made of rocks. 
And that in itself is evidence that somebody has put it together. Now, uh, that's what's true of the universe. You cannot hunt for God in the universe and find him unless he chooses to appear. And you need not find any specific evidence that he has ever been here. But what you do have is the thing itself. The existence of creation in its entirety is evidence enough of God's existence. So that's my silly analogy. I hope that helps. But here's the second thing to say about this. This verse is saying that people inherently know the truth about God's existence. I think this is really important for us as Christians to believe when we're rubbing shoulders, as it were, with our colleagues and our neighbors and our friends, people who don't believe uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they will claim that they don't know God and that there is no God, and they'll say all kinds of uh, uh, strange things. But what this verse is saying to us, and this is true, and this is something we need to believe, is that people inherently know the truth about God's existence. It is a truth that people know, but they try to suppress it. But it's there. Creation yells to everybody. And they have a sense of it inside themselves. And so, if that's true, and it is true, then when you and I are talking to somebody who's not a Christian... There is something that you and I know about that, uh, and the Bible knows about that person, that maybe they do not acknowledge about themselves. That they have a knowledge of the existence of God. And that should help us in our evangelistic conversations. Not to be put off by saying, oh, there's no evidence. They know. It is built into them. Ecclesiastes 3.11, a verse I often use in evangelistic settings where the writer says, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. That There are questions about our existence that go far beyond our mere physical existence in this universe. There are questions that we can ask about our lives that do not find an answer in the universe, but will only find an answer when we find the God who made us the way, the way we are. He set eternity in the hearts of men. This is what John Calvin called the sensus divinatus, divinitatis rather. This inherent sense of divinity in human beings, planted in human beings because that's how he is made. So be encouraged as you go and talk to your non-Christian friends. They have a knowledge that they do not necessarily acknowledge and are trying to suppress And it just needs you to go and start raking over the ground a little bit with your gospel conversations because then it'll start coming back to them. Be encouraged. And so Paul comes to this conclusion then at the end of verse 20. They are without excuse. Because the rejection of that plain evidence of creation is to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So friends... Paul is painting a picture of a humanity that is desperately trying to persuade itself that God is not there. As it were, pulling the bed covers over your head in the morning like a grumpy teenager and saying, I don't want to face reality this today. This is what the world is like. 
And if I can just hide here under my covers, then maybe God will go away. Well, any parent knows that, and any child, any teenager knows that your parents are not going to give up that easily. Paul says, no, the wrath of God is being revealed against your unrighteousness. There are no excuses, and there is nowhere on this earth that you can hide from God. And so I ask you this afternoon, is there anyone here this afternoon who has that sense building up with them, within them that there is truth to what Paul is saying? That there is a God that one day, no matter how hard you try to avoid him, you will one day have no choice but to meet him. And though you try to suppress those thoughts with all your might, they just will not go away. Is there anyone here like that today? Maybe God is revealing something to you then about his existence. But Paul's not finished here. Because lastly, Paul now speaks about such a person and how they are living a lie. And this takes us to the final part of our passage. Paul knows that uh, man is made in the image of God and to be in re- made to be in relationship with God. And the knowledge of God brings its own moral imperative, that is, to live and to glorify God. And we see this in the way that Paul goes on in verse, verses 21 and 23. So verse 21 says, For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks to him. Or verse 23, uh, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Man's ultimate purpose in this created universe is to bring him glory, to give praise and thanks to him. That's your purpose, that's my purpose. And it's one reason why the first question in the Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which the question is, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to God and to enjoy him forever. Well done. (laughs) Well done. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So what happens then when man, as it were, has pulled the blankets over his head and seeks to ignore God? What, what happens to mankind when he tries to do that? Well, can I, can I quote G.K. Chesterton at this point? Who said this very profound thing amongst many others that he said. When people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. And it is a strange thing that today, in our modern, sophisticated, western, educated world, we find people all around us beginning to believe anything but the truth. And we see this here in verse 23. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. You get a proliferation of every kind of religion under the sun. Uh, sometimes people ask, ask me when I'm evangelizing with, and sharing the gospel with somebody, yeah, but what about all the religions? How do you know which one's the right one? And why are there so many anyway? Well, here's the reason. Man will believe in anything. He'll make up anything just to get away from the God that exists. And so they'll worship any created thing. 
every kind of religion under the sun. And the essential characteristic of every religion under the sun is that you worship something that's been created. And Paul identifies images that come from the pagan world, which is commonplace at Paul's time. But don't think that that limits what mankind can create with his imagination. Whether it's pursuit of pleasure or money or power or some other uh, religious construct that you make up by yourself or the scientist who believes in the ascent of man or the absolutizing of my internal feelings about what my true identity is, whatever it is you make up out of your own imagination, some kind of God to worship, some kind of fundamental principle to give your life to, anything but God. And all of it at heart is the worship of the creature rather than the worship of the immortal God. Now jump back to verse 21. What what happens to man when he does this? Uh, Two things, verse 21. They become futile in their thinking. That's the first thing. They become futile in their thinking. Futile, pointless, empty, unable to achieve any useful results. In other words, without the worship and glory of God, it is impossible to have any meaningful point to life. It's impossible. And life becomes futile and empty. And you can dress it up however you like, but in an atheist universe, there can be no ultimate purpose. I often try to argue this with non-Christians. In a universe without God, whatever purpose you come up with uh, to live your life by, In the end, it comes to nothing, because why? Everybody dies. Nobody cares. You know, one day the solar system is going to be destroyed as the sun blasts out into a supernova. And the the solar system becomes a barren wilderness, and that's happening all over the universe. And eventually, after trillions and trillions of of years, so the scientists say, the universe becomes just a kind of array of radiation um, with no signature no memory of whatever went before because of the entropy in the universe it's pointless the whole an atheist universe is a pointless universe there's no purpose to it and though we might scream as we desperately look for a point to it all there is no one listening in a godless universe nobody is listening Their thinking becomes futile. But here's the second thing that happens. Their hearts become places of darkness and foolishness. Again, verse 21, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Uh, The word foolish is the word from which we get the word moron. It used to be a term of abuse as a a teenager. not very proud of that, but... uh, uh, it used to be a technical term, wasn't it, for a fool? And the human heart becomes a dark place without God. Verse 24 tells us that the human heart that is not given to the glory of God is a place full of lusts, passions, unsatisfying, unsatisfied longings of the human heart. And instead of those longings being directed towards God, they are directed towards impurity, sin, 
And the primary direction of this longing is, is how people begin to use their bodies. You see, a society that has given up on God, a society is a society that promotes the use of the body to satisfy its longings. Whether it's the promotion of the human body to sell things, or the presentation of beautiful celebrities and celebrity culture, or to boost TV ratings, or all the more sordid aspects of our culture that I dare not mention. That's where society goes that's godless. Well, I need to come to a conclusion, and Paul's basic point is this. The reason that man needs God's righteousness is that man himself is steeped in unrighteousness. And worse than that, he doesn't want to be anything else. And it's a desperate situation because it brings the wrath of God upon him. And Paul now comes as a herald of good news about Jesus Christ to free us from this darkness that is around us by offering to us the bright light of Jesus Christ and all his righteousness that if only we would receive it by faith then we can be saved from this broken universe and the consequences of God's judgment and so as we finish I pray and trust that all of us here this evening this afternoon have received this Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, your words. Thank you for the, the, the sharp, uh, penetrating nature of it that it reaches into our hearts and tests us and questions us, but presents to us truth. We pray that you would help us all to see more clearly and more wonderfully the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For his name's sake we pray. Amen.